0: I am willing to wager twenty thousand pounds that I will make a tour of the world in eighty days or less. You accept? Accept. I accept. The train leaves for Dover
1: this evening. Good evening, gentlemen.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to 80 Days in Exploration podcast. Today's podcast, as ever, is brought to you by three history and geography nerds in an internet-powered balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements, and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly. I'm broadcasting from Dublin, Ireland, and joining me today are... Mark Boyle in Surrey in the UK.
1: And Joe Byrne in Galway, Ireland.
0: And today we'll be discussing Gabon, officially the Gabonese Republic an equatorial country on the west coast of Africa. Originally inhabited by Bantu tribes, the area we now know as Gabon was first explored by Europeans in the 15th century. Local inhabitants began to sell slaves to Europeans in the 18th and 19th centuries, which established the region as a hub for the slave trade. In 1910, Gabon became one of the four territories of French equatorial Africa, and 50 years later became fully independent. Since then, the politics of the country has been dominated by one Omar Bongo, Gabon's second president, and his son, Ali Bongo, who succeeded him in 2009. Gabon has a total land area of around 257,000 square kilometers, or just under 100,000 square miles, making it around the same size as the UK, New Zealand, or the US state of Oregon. Gabon is bordered by Equatorial Guinea to the northwest, Cameroon to the north, and the Republic of Congo on the east and south. Gabon is home to just over 2.1 million people, with the vast majority of those being in Libreville, the largest city and capital lying on the Como River, near the Gulf of Guinea. The official language is French, although many Gabonese people speak various mother tongues according to their ethnic group, of which there are over 40. Gabon is one of the most prosperous countries on the continent, with the fifth highest GDP per capita in all of Africa, while almost 85% of Gabon is covered by rainforests, 11% of which have been dedicated for national parks. Okay, so what are you guys looking forward to telling us about today? Um, Well, for me,
2: I've discovered that a character from uh, 80s favourite, The Princess Bride, is real. uh, And I'm going to be covering them in my section. All right.
0: Nice one. Yep. Joe, how about you?
1: Probably the most unexpected person I came across, who who I'm going to get to talk about later, is um, a Nobel Prize winner who had to study medicine despite having you no know, previous experience in medicine, in order to leave his life of recording back organ recitals and move to Gabon. Okay. It's an obvious kind of pathway <laughs> towards right. to life. And, yeah, and that's
0: and that sounds straightforward. Your
1: CV is fractured. It suggests no clear path in your life. Yeah. The word polymath came up, and I think it is appropriate. Okay.
0: Fair enough. I am looking forward to discussing what must surely be one of the world's shortest ever coups, which lasted for just under 48 hours. We'll get to that later in the episode. Joe, do you want to kick us off with some very early history?
1: Yes, uh, this may be the earliest history I have ever talked about. So just to set the scene, uh, Gabon is in a tropical region along the Gulf of Guinea. It's hot and humid in the rainy season, of which there are two, September to January, February to June and then drier and cooler in the dry season, which isn't actually that much of the year, really, looking at the mm. the months missing in that list. Yeah. And then it's a bit more overcast. Okay. There are abundant rainforests, and even to this day, there's huge amounts of sort of untouched, essentially, rainforest, which is Good. cool. A lot of it's protected in, in national parks. The excessive rainfall is caused by the condensation of moist air resulting from the meeting up, direct off the coast of the a cold current from the south and a warm guinea current from the north. And so along the coast you got mangroves, which I think we encountered up in Gambia as well, these kind of swampy coastal regions, a hilly interior, and then savanna in the east and south. So that's kind of the wow. climactic layout of the place. Taking all the boxes. Sounds yeah. delightful. But anyway, the the, the the deep prehistory, the thing that it must be one of the oldest things we ever talked about, happened about two billion years ago. Two billion. Two billion.
0: Okay, so this episode is only going to go on for about six hours then. No, there's a
1: big gap. Don't worry, there's a big gap after this. Yeah, This is around about the time when the atmosphere started to get a little bit oxygenated. Something kicked off in Gabon that is unique uh, in the world as far as we know. Oklo is the location of the only documented site of a naturally occurring nuclear fission reactor on the Earth.
0: Wow. I didn't know that was a thing.
1: Well, it's the only recorded uh, instance of it and neither did I. Okay. This is nowadays a uranium mine, so that's how this was discovered, and in 1972, some of that ore was being mined and was sent off for um, enrichment in France. Some routine mass spectrometry analysis showed weird results, uh, which is to say an unusually low abundance of one of the isotopes of uranium, so... Um, okay. Obviously, everyone's up to date with their nuclear physics. So is it mm. two three five? Y- oh yeah. Okay. Yes. So yeah. isotopes are two versions of an element with different amounts of neutrons in the core. So the nucleus of a, an atom has protons and neutrons, and if it has a different number of neutrons, which don't have a charge, that's a different isotope. So uranium two three five is the the kind of uranium that we use for nuclear energy and, and nuclear weapons unfortunately
0: that's the cool uranium uh,
1: yeah it's it's the Marketable. fissile one they call it the one that mm. can be efficient nuclear fission is when you split apart atoms
0: so there was a there was a fission reaction happening at this site what yeah. millions of years ago
1: billions of years ago yes okay so okay basically the the, the ratio of of uranium two three five to two three eight, which is another long-lived isotope of uranium, should be about the same everywhere because they're decaying over millions of years at the same rate everywhere. Right. Yeah. And it's I think about 0.7% of uranium is usually 235. So not a lot, but it's enough to you you enrich it and then you use it in a nuclear reactor. This sample was about half that, I think. So much less of the kind of uranium you're looking for in there. So
2: it had been like used up, like fuel. Exactly.
1: It had been used up at some point and this triggered an an investigation at the factory kind of going, is somebody siphoning off, somehow like enriching the uranium, using it for terrorism.
2: Scary. So they had to figure out what
1: was going on. Wow. But this, they took more and more samples from Oklo and they all had this weird pattern of having the wrong ratio of these two isotopes, which suggested, as you say, Mark, that it was used up sometime in the past before we got to it. Uh, so they did lots of follow-up research uh, looking at all the different, you know, nuclear, the problem with nuclear reactions, they, they create all of these byproducts as the, the nuclei right. fall apart into smaller nuclei, ultimately resulting in stuff like lead. But you can look at the different isotopes of those and they should be in a certain ratio if they're naturally occurring or if they're the result of a nuclear reaction. And so, okay. you know, the ruthenium here was in the wrong ratio in in these ores. And, it, you know, they did lots of studies and all of it confirmed the calculations for all of the different elements and how they should behave if a fission reaction had occurred 2 billion years ago. And they find these 16 different sites uh, in and around the same seam that behave this way. So what they think has happened, and there were, some stu- there were some theories proposed before this happened that maybe this was possible. They think at just the right point when there was enough oxygen in the atmosphere that uranium could dissolve, uranium oxides will dissolve in water, groundwater flooded, The uranium-containing rock, uranium was washed into areas where it concentrated together to the right concentration, that it reached a critical mass. The water acted to slow down neutrons moving through it, which allowed that first nuclear reaction to occur and the chain reaction to start. So this is like why you dip your uranium rods into heavy water water in a nuclear reactor. This was happening naturally. And what they think happened was it would heat up, boil off the water, and then stop about every three hours. And then flood again, and then the reaction would start again, and it would boil off all the water, and it would stop, for potentially millennia. Wow! But only producing about a hundred kilowatt hours of energy over the course of its entire existence. So not a very good nuclear reactor in terms of harnessing right. it. But, but uh,
0: still, like uh, a naturally occurring nuclear reactor is 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 pretty interesting. It's it's
1: unique, I think. Yeah, Yeah. so that's the uranium. There's also lots of oil and gas around here, like a lot of the region, and that becomes important to the economy later. And manganese, a lot of manganese mines. The oldest evidence of human inhabitants seems to be around 7,000 years ago. Some Stone Age tools have been found, although I did see something from last year that maybe they've discovered some slightly older stuff uh, more recently. It is believed, however, the original inhabitants of what is now Gabon and the surrounding countries were... Uh, ancestors of the contemporary groups of people who are generally called uh, pygmies which is people of average height of about 1.5 meters there's uh, various ethnic groups in kind of central africa that meet this definition that term is a little bit controversial uh, because it's gonna mm. ask yeah yep.
2: <laughs> just, that doesn't feel the best term you know,
1: it's also used to describe some shorter stature groups in asia as well so it's not like it's not a meaningful okay. ethnic grouping or national grouping yeah. it's just a sort of a catch-all for people who live in the rainforest and are shorter than their neighbors as well as we acknowledging that i guess moving swiftly on so terms like uh, mbenga and batwa in the bantu languages are used to describe these people but they would have exi- they would have been here before bantu people and we'll, we'll get to that uh, so they were the original hunter gatherer inhabitants of the area some of their descendants still maintain hunter gatherer lifestyles in the rainforest such as the baka who were a you know sizable group but not by no means uh, large in comparison to other groups and there's also a group called the babongo who um, have taken the other approach and they've actually completely adapted to settled subsistence farming in the last century and no longer speak the pre-existing languages so people of these groups have gone different directions culturally hmm. uh, obviously a big event for all of africa uh, but gabon specifically as well was the bantu expansion which we talked about before definitely where basically, much like how the Indo-European languages have spread all over Europe and Asia from some original grouping somewhere in the Middle East, perhaps, the Bantu languages and culture uh, spread out from somewhere around um, Nigeria, that part of the world, uh, about 2,000 to 1,000 years ago. And groups speaking Bantu languages, which are all these interrelated languages like Swahili and Zulu and various languages in Gabon, spread south and east all across the continent, bringing with them iron tools, modes of agriculture and different cultures. And this happened in Gabon. Gabon's quite close in the general scheme of thing to where the Bantu migrations would have started from. Frederick Mayo Bibang, a historian of Gabon, puts the arrival in Gabon to about the 11th century. It's hard to be sure precisely though oh
2: wow so pretty you know we're we're kind of we're getting through through the history then we're, we're getting yeah. pretty contemporary with that yeah
1: because i suppose mo- most of the pre-existing people would have been you know colonized essentially by these bantu expansions so there's not mm. that much history left of them so the back are one of the few non-bantu languages still spoken in gabon uh while many other of the pygmy tribes would have adopted bantu languages of their neighbours. Some of the ethnic groups we're going to hear about later, like the Fang, who actually come about the 19th century, the Miene, who were there a little bit earlier, the Punu, the Nizemba, the Teke, the Kota, and the Akele. And these are all various Bantu-speaking groups. And the relationship between Bantu groups and the the Pygmy groups is kind of paradoxical, as I'll describe this way in one book, where they're kind of revered by the Bantu farmers, but also scorned. So there's this kind of okay, yeah. You know, they are wise in the ways of the forest, but also they're uneducated, and you know they do our hunting for us. And why are they being so troublesome about not getting paid? You know that kind of maybe not unlike how um, itinerant groups are treated in other societies, where you, you kind of like, that
2: was kind of what I was thinking. Yeah, that they ha- they have they know certain things, but I'm not going to let them in my house. Okay.
1: So an important part of most of these societies uh, were initiation societies. They form an important role in, they're done in, it's, it's different in each ethnic group, and each tribal group, but most of the groups in Gabon seem to have these kind of secret societies you join as a as a man or a woman when you reach adulthood. Oh, okay. And there's various rituals right. and masks are very important in a lot of these groups for, mm-hmm. uh, you know, ancestor worship or animism. Buiti belief persists to this day, that's one form of this. Uh, it probably originated with the Babongo, who were a, a pygmy group uh and was adopted by the sogo and also the fang as they became the largest group in the area so this is kind of you know some of the cultural traditions shared between ethnic groups which is fascinating and it's kind of focused focused around a hallucinogenic drug called iboga which means healing wood all right and that's used to commune with the ancestors and so on so you have ceremonies for the initiated come on for days and in urban settings or out in the the countryside.
2: Do 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 you know at all what iboga is? Just being say healing wood. Was it like wormwood or something?
1: It's it's a specific um, plant that grows here, and has a, an okay. alkaloid in it that causes hallucinogenic episodes.
2: All right. Johnny chemistry, <laughs> alkaloid, I swear to God. <laughs> I just Googled Iboga really quickly and it, it turns out it's actually used in anti-opioid um, addiction treatments. Yes, um, that's true. It's, a, it's yeah. a class one narcotic, but uh, yeah, it, apparently it's relatively widespread. There's a lot of countries trialing it and stuff, even though it's also potentially fatal.
1: Yeah, no, there is some kind of modern medical research into its potential to um, do things, which is interesting. But I, I think okay. as of now, it's it's not been it's shaky officially accepted anywhere by the medical establishment yeah um before colonialism like i don't think you know westerners tried to put labels on all these ethnic groups and language groups and make them make sense but they didn't really you know there were groups that spoke the same language who weren't related there were groups that were related and spoke different languages intermarrying was important because sometimes your whole clan was seen as related to you so it was gross to marry a clan member so you go somewhere else to find a, a spouse and intermarriage is very widespread so every group kind of had its own its own oral history of where they came from and these links are still important today but you have these oral historian traditions like Mavet uh, singing in the fang culture um, where they sing stories using uh, the Mavet instrument which is kind of like a, a, a harp and they tell stories of their history and where they came from and the great battles people fought along the way as they migrated into Gabon. But how much of that could be reliably considered history, who knows. Another feature that, that's why this is shared between a lot of groups is uh, reliquaries. So carrying around the bones of your ancestors in reliquaries that were guarded by little um, statues or masks, or or uh, they're called reliquary guardians, Uh, usually the shape of heads or long torsoed bodies. They appeared in museums in the West, obviously, when they were taken by colonists, uh, but they're religious and cultural items. And when Westerners discovered these boxes of skulls and bones among the Fang, they assumed that they were cannibals. Oh, dear. uh, When, in fact, they were actually the bones of their ancestors. So this actually made them Mm. very susceptible to enslavement, and we'll talk about slavery later, and part of why they kept moving southwards towards Gabon over time. Right. So, coming up to nearly history, um, in the 1300s and 1400s, there was a Kingdom called the Luanga Kingdom, probably, came into being around then. Uh, it was a Kikongo-speaking political entity along the coast, either side of the mouth of the Congo River, including Gabon. So that was probably here when Europeans arrived. Yeah. Um, There's plenty of evidence, archaeological evidence, of like iron-containing graves and agriculture from maybe the 7th century to the 1300s. But the interior of the country, we know nothing. There was this assumption that, like, people couldn't have lived in the rainforest, so there's been very little archaeology done, and we're probably wrong. Right. And so by the 1400s, the state of play is that the Nakombi were in the Fern and region, the Arungu group were in the Cap Lopez area, right, and the Mpongwe, who were a Miene-speaking group, were in the northern coastal regions. Possibly as part of a kingdom run by a legendary figure called Mani Pongo. Cool. Uh, and then the Diwa clan, I think, will come up later, who were kind of the key figures in in that kingdom. So complex, churning, changing mix of of uh, Bantu-speaking people uh, mm. are here waiting to be engaged with by. Oh dear. The Europeans. Oh,
0: engage with is such a is such a polite way of putting it, Joe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hello. We'd like to engage with you. We're going to devour you. <laughs> All right. Mark, Let's what look did, into our giant mall. What did uh engagement look like from a from a, a European perspective? Mark. Um well, um 1472
2: is the year when um Gabon is uh its engagement is initiated. <laughs> engage Gabon. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Get 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 ready, Gabon. You're yeah. about to be engaged with, but yeah. down this wooden spoon, Portuguese explorers led by Lopez Goncalves made their way down far enough of the coast of Africa to hit modern day Gabon. Now, they were part of the kind of the, the very broad program instigated by uh, Portugal and uh, in particular Prince Henry the Navigator to scoot down the west coast of Africa and explore slash claim uh, as much of the continent as as they could. Uh, When they reached Gabon, they were actually the first Europeans to cross the equator as it happened. They explored the coast of Gabon. But as you kind of alluded to, Joe, uh, they weren't really hanging about or really kind of delving beyond the coast. And Hmm. we're going to kind of talk about the effect of that and how kind of persistent uh, that was. I mean, famously up until like the 1800s. Africa was referred to as the dark continent because yep. people didn't know what was inside it. They yep. just knew the coastline.
1: And it was very like it was very hard to get into unless there's a big navigable river. So like the Congo eventually becomes the, the Congo River.
0: Oh, we'll talk about that later on. Yeah. But like yeah, that, the coast that, that is quite up, yeah.
1: unforgiving. Like finding somewhere to put in was tricky. Yeah you know, indeed. For a lot of the coast of Africa.
2: So yeah, they, they explore the coast and uh, uh, Cap López is named after López Goncalves. Um, he was also called, I think, Lópo Goncalves, which I think is a bit cooler. I think that's just Portuguese. Well, wow. wow. Uh, anyway, um, they named the area after the Portuguese word Gabão, which is a coat with sleeves and a hood, because they felt that the Como River estuary, Como River being kind of the big geographical feature of the coast, um, they felt that that kind of resembled this portuguese coat of the time
1: that's a pretty lame origin
0: story would an apt description of a coat with sleeves and a hood be a hoodie or
1: something i guess sure or just a coat <laughs> yeah just any it coach. sounds just yeah, like really. a coat
0: or... so
2: so for the next three years they they do little here and there exploration they they base themselves in south home and principe Uh, and uh, explore the coast uh, up and down. There's also um, Diego Cao, who turns up. He is, as far as I know, he's the first person to go up the Congo River. Um, And he also helped explore the Gabon coast as well, although he's really more so known for his, his work in the Congo. Um, speaking of the Congo, uh, you, you alluded to the existence of this kind of Loango kingdom. Mm. It's kind of generally felt that it was affiliated or at the very least kind of heavily traded with the Congo kingdom or the King of Congo. Um, but that you know, it, it probably wasn't officially, you know, linked with it. It was probably a sort of a, a loose affiliate, mainly kind of trade-based. It's
1: sort of in the sphere of influence. Exactly that. Yeah and, yeah, and this is Congo with a K is the the name of a kingdom and then... Sea is usually used for like the river in the modern countries, yeah. And they don't completely overlap, no, but it's a, an ethnic group at this point.
2: Uh, and I, I mean, I, I think they were pretty, they've been established for a hundred years or so at that point, the the Congo right. kingdom. Uh, so they, they were pretty, pretty well developed, they had you know cities and society and such. So the Portuguese established sugar plantations on those offshore islands, as I say, um, and they expand trade with the mainland. They did set up a trading post near modern-day Port Gentil uh, in a place called uh, Manji, and uh, they're then followed by the Dutch, the British, the Germans, the Danes, the French, all the cornucopia of, of European colonial types. Yeah, everybody get over here. Everybody, you know, uh, fill your boots. Um, they all turn up between the 1500s and 1600s. And the coast became a centre of the slave trade, although we'll kind of get a bit more into that later. The Portuguese wanted cheap labour, but were also buying, you know, all kinds of commodities from there. So there was ivory, hardwoods, wild rubber. So there, there was an increase of trade around the estuary and that enticed the Fang people slowly, slowly to kind of migrate to that estuary region and also the Walayo entem agricultural region in the north uh, where they're you know, still a, a major force to this day. So this kind of increased economic activity drew the Fang to this kind of general area and kind of consolidated them
0: I guess kind
1: of geographically. From mm. further north where they would have been. Yes. And st- still are some in, in uh, Cameroon and other
0: yeah, from Midland. yeah. Ooh, there's trading happening here. Let's... Uh, uh,
1: exactly, it's just, you know... let move towards those white guys. They're, they're going to where the money is, the, effectively. The kind of top dogs in the region up to that were the Mpongwe, right? Yes. Yeah,
2: the Mpongwe, yeah. Um, they, they, they were the former, formerly kind of dominant group in the estuary. Mm. Um, And they were the initial beneficiary of European trade, but they were kind of forced to accommodate all these extra Fang people coming in. And it, there's still a bit of a wariness between the two mm-hmm. groups to this day. So... Mm. Uh, more, more on that later. Ugh. So, the Portuguese lost local power gradually. They were they were kind of the dominant force, but they weren't the only force there. Um, but they were annexed by Spain in 1580 and, you know, that'll do it, uh, being, being taken over by another country. So, uh, the Portuguese kind of lost their influence. I did find this tantalising line, which I never found too much more about, it was that the Dutch had, had established some kind of factory on Corisco Island and were attacked by the local Indiwa people in 1600. Could not find another detail on that, but I was really really interested about that. Yeah, just kind I, of it opened you know.
1: some of my reading as well as this kind of kind of seminal moment of like yeah, the Gabonese fought back. Exactly. Uh, kind of consistently there there was never just kind of a okay, that's fine. And I I think there may have been a reprisal against that clan. I think there was, and I was think it was quite, savage. Uh, yeah. It was quite devastating. But if if I'm honest,
2: I didn't want to hear too much about the reprisal. I did kind of want to hear a bit more about the uh, yeah, the attack the on the Dutch. I was I was more there for that, if I'm honest. Yep, you know,
1: that was there was some kind of kingdom there led by the Nijua clan, which I think that put an end to. Mm, right.
2: Okay, so the you know rich diversity gets slightly less diverse. Anyway, by the end of the 1600s, Cap López, chartered by the Portuguese in the late 1400s, had become a regular port of call for Europeans and American ships in search of ivory, palm oil, exotic goods like parrot feathers and the teeth of hippopotami, and there was also Protestant and Catholic missionaries turning up to convert the indigenous peoples to Christianity. Slavery was kind of only growing in importance. It was it was initially just kind of in the mix of various economic activities, but it slowly grew to totally kind of drown out all, all other activity.
1: I suppose America was coming into its own at this point. Uh, mm-hmm. e-
2: exactly. Yeah. The the new world is starting to get uh, hungry for bodies, as it were.
1: So the the colonials
2: hadn't penetrated um beyond the coastlines as as we mentioned. So at least initially, they relied very significantly on on various layers of kind of economic outsourcing for the the slave trade. It was Africans who were mainly doing the kind of the finding of slaves and the transporting of slaves and bringing them to the European ships. You had these people called caravan leaders or or Mubiri uh, who didn't actually perform raids themselves, but they outsourced this. uh, And they were the kind of the the deal makers and also were transporting them across lands. To bring a slave successfully to the coast, the Mubiri had to negotiate safe passage with other local leaders in the lands through which they passed. Local coastline leaders fairly quickly established control over contacts to ship captains. This was all super big business, so you know you have winners and losers on this. There's also still subsistence farming and fishing, but they're obviously going to decline because everyone wants to try to get in on this you know, boom industry, as it were.
1: And I assume there, there was slavery of some sort within the indigenous culture beforehand, but this was an economic incentive to
0: the interior. At this point, was basically unknown to the Europeans. So, hmm. indeed, you they know, didn't know yeah, who
1: these the, people are or where they were coming from. Just exactly, and if them. you could,
0: if you could pop off into the interior and come back a week later with you know ten people to sell, that was a that was an economic boon, yeah. I guess.
1: But I, I think you know prisoners of war type slavery had been practiced you know, like by most societies in history. But this was a, you know bring it to an industrial scale
2: by seventeen seventy. The, the trade in slaves had, had largely been, I guess, kind of calcified uh, locally within Gabon. They weren't relying on kind of people from, from further away to, to make this work anymore. Uh, Gabon's topography and relatively small population limited its attractiveness to slavers interested in large concentrations of young men and women who could be gathered easily and near the coast. In the 18th century, Gabon's population probably did not exceed 150,000, with a substantial proportion of this number living in the inaccessible interior. Mm. Something I, I didn't realise, but um, it was interesting, also awful. But there was um, slave routes. Uh, there was just normal kind of navigational, I guess, commutes used by slavers. And there was two principal navigational routes used by the slavers. The first was known as the petite route, which took the slavers slowly along the coast of the Gulf of Guinea was less favoured than the Grand Route, which bypassed Capon on a direct course to the more plentiful supplies of slaves along the densely populated Loanga coast of the south. The Grand Route further gave the slave ships the full advantage of the trade winds on the journey to the markets of America. So geographically, mm. they benefited from being kind of hard to stop in. So that was that was, you mean, know, to, not to their advantage economically because I guess at the time they were keen on it in some respects or at least some some of them were. But, um, you know, in terms of the people of Gabon, they weren't exploited to the same degree by the slave trade as other areas on the west coast of Africa. So, right. a, a benefit, I guess, in that way. Anyway, these huge changes uh, made society much more territorial and hierarchical. So we talked about how just by kind of putting a big pot of money in the port and saying, bring me slaves, all of these economic economic systems form their way to kind of facilitate the trade. Similarly, it it just totally changed society as well. Everybody became much more territorial. I made that point earlier about how, you know, a Mubiri would have to negotiate passage across land. Well, then there is economic systems that kind of form around that as well. So it just all gets more complicated. And if you have a route towards the coast, well, then suddenly you have you know, road frontage. You have
1: you have a toll booth.
2: You have desirable land and you're going to charge more. And if somebody else has it, well, you might want to take it from them. Uh, and if it's been taken from you, well, you're going to have to go live somewhere else, somewhere you probably didn't want to live before. So it, it just leads to this kind of, you know, churning change of migration, people getting pushed to areas that they didn't want to be in and just lots of awful stuff. I know very surprising when it comes to slavery that it's, it's pretty much bad for everybody mm. apart from, you know, the slavers. Anyway, the Kingdom of Orungu, I'm just going to very quickly caveat this, that um, I I found mention of Orungu, the Kingdom of Orungu, many times, but couldn't find any, you know, decent uh, detail on it. Uh, So I've had to settle for Wikipedia, I'm afraid. So they were a metalworking and boat building culture, which allowed them to dominate the the river trade. And maritime commerce uh, included trade in all kinds of, you know, commodities like we mentioned, uh, ivory and beeswax and ebony and dyewood and various interesting things. But um, this kind of, you know, success in commerce allowed them to be a net importer of slaves. Uh, they were, you know, quite happy to use slaves as well, as, as you did earlier, Joe. But as I say at the start, they were a purchaser rather than a seller of slaves. But as things kind of went on, they were one of the few coherent kind of political entities, I guess. Um, so they, they were really involved in the uh, in the slave trade as well before too long. By the 1760s, the Orungu were trading slaves and in 1788, Cap Lopez and the Gabon Estuary were exporting around 5,000 slaves per year in contrast to 13 and a half uh, per year further down Loango. So, you know, quite a lot, certainly, uh, but still not as much as other areas of the of the African coast.
1: Can, can I say something I found interesting about the Orungu-Mapengue sure. um, thing, which I, I don't know if it is that interesting, but the, like they both spoke related languages. But they had very different uh, inheritance traditions. So when the 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 Urunga, I think, were mater- mater- matrilinear inheritance. Okay. So your your clan was determined by who your mother was, and the Mapengwe were patrilineal. And it sort of shows that like, just having the same language doesn't mean you're coming from the same history. Oh, indeed, yes. And one of the theories I saw is that the Orongo were more influenced by the the kingdom to the south the Congo and so on where okay. matrilineal clans were the norm right? and the Mpengue were more influenced by some of the further north customs but obviously the Orunga kind of becoming more dominant was a complete change in how society was structured for the people who were shunted out of the way so maybe some of those things are a bit subtle to understand when we just reduce it down to a couple of names but you know, the, these groups had very different priorities and ways of doing things to each other.
2: Oh, yeah. And I mean, like, I mean, I, I, I'm i talking very glibly about, you know, well, this, this tribe look, looking over here and saying, I want your land. As well, hmm. th- these are massive, you know, society level ructions and they were happening all the time. So, yeah, yeah no, very it's, it's, hard to it's really significant stuff. It's just that, you know, the, the level of detail one would need to go into, you know. Our podcast is already pretty long. I feel like we yep. we, we don't we don't have the space I'm afraid. Uh, nope. So um I did mention um the Princess Bride uh, and uh here we go with the real Dread Pirate Roberts. Oh, excellent. Uh, if you know the film, uh Wesley um pretends to be the Dread Pirate Roberts, uh, the guy who actually kidnapped him, but uh it, it's actually the, the Prince Charming, it's Wesley. This guy, less of a Prince Charming. Uh, His name is Bartholomew Roberts. uh, He'd also be uh, known by John Roberts, which is what he was born as. He was a Welsh pirate. And according to Wikipedia, the most successful pirate of the golden age of piracy, measured by vessels captured, uh, taking over 400 prizes in his career.
0: That's pretty successful.
1: Is prize the technical term for robbing a ship? Yeah, it
0: is. I guess it is. Yeah. So between 1719
2: and 1722 is when he's when he's active. Uh, He's also known for having a pirate code and being keen on the skull and crossbones. So he's one of the originators of that. Um, He's also known by the name of Black Bart, which I I think I've also heard heard that name. Mm -hmm. But um, he uh, died in uh, in Gabon. So um, I I found some uh, really excellent, super long PDF with lots of kind of old-timey quotes about, about pirates. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm just going to give you a quick brief on, on how he passed away in Gabon. So to describe the man, it was not for want of employment, but from a roving, wild and boisterous turn of mind. It was his usual declaration that, in an honest service, there are commonly low wages and hard labour. In this, plenty, society, pleasure and ease, liberty and power, a merry life and a short one shall be my motto. Not sure that's a motto technically, but I, I guess I, I like his vibe. You, you keep
0: um,
1: using that word, but I do not think you know what it means. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs>
0: um, I'm disappointed you didn't go with the pirate, uh, you know, the typical pirate accent, uh, yeah. Mark think you should be rolling your R's a bit more, you know.
2: I'm already kind of
1: pirate-y. Uh huh? <laughs> I already sound like I have my throat slashed. But given so. the default pirate accent is basically Irish, uh, I, I don't <laughs> know if you can do pirate <laughs>
0: accents. You just got to throw in a few yars there yeah. every once in a while. Well,
2: yar, uh, Roberts lay off <laughs> Cap Lopez just off the coast of modern-day Port Gentile in 1722 when the Swallow, which was, you know, by comparison to his ship, flipping massive, found him. He tried to run the gauntlet, basically just... I'm just going to blitz it and see if I get past the flipping thing. Um, and he knew that was going to mean taking a full blast, a broadside from the cannons of the Swallow. And, and his boat did. So he took that first shot from the Swallow and then returned fire. But then either through a change of wind or a missed steer on, on part of his crew, it allowed the Swallow to maneuver to get a second shot off at Roberts. And he was hit with a grape shot to the throat. Ooh. His Ooh. men were initially not sympathetic not perceiving him wounded, swore at him and bade him stand up and fight like a man. But when they realised they tossed him overboard, as had been his repeated request, Oh wow! his body was never recovered. Um, okay. But, uh, That's yeah. That's quite, um... uh, It's a
1: way to go out. It's a bit cold, isn't it? It's like, if I get shot, toss me. Like, alright boss, I will have no no compunction about doing no problem
2: I I I think a lot of his men had already actually bailed on him so yeah I think he just kind of didn't want to be nailed to the side I don't suppose
0: there was a great amount of like uh, medical doctors on board a pirate ship in the 1700s either
2: well indeed yeah
0: that's why so many of them were wandering around with missing limbs (laughs) I guess (laughs) right Yeah, that was a sample of some uh, traditional Fang Mavet style music. So we're going to move on, uh, thankfully, to the uh, the end, or at least the attempted end of the slave trade.
1: Oh, that was quick.
0: Yeah, well, we don't want to we don't want to dwell on it too long, Joe.
1: This this, this isn't uh, the Gambia.
0: No, uh, or Liberia, indeed. Yeah. So in 1815, uh, the Congress of Vienna essentially uh, condemned the slave trade and uh, outlawed it for a a number of nations. As a result, French officials uh, decided to take this opportunity to make their way to the Gulf of Guinea to interrupt slave ships. But also this provided them a handy excuse to agitate the Royal Navy. Which held uh, sway over many strategically located uh, naval bases in this region at the at the time.
1: Oh, I see. Using pretend moral uh, advantages over your your economic rivals—that's
0: you can you can kill two birds with one stone, can't you? I guess yeah. French merchants also wanted to expand their presence in the region, and Gabon was proving a fertile ground for them to do so. Dual purposes, uh, to put it uh, to put it mildly, but. Um, you know, they at least did uh, clamp down on the slave trade when they when they arrived in the Gulf of Guinea. However, this uh, mission also brought the French into conflict with many of the uh, local tribes who, believe it or not, had been implicit in the slave trade, as we discussed. Uh, some of those lived near the mouth of the Como River and in retaliation for their crackdown against the slave trade, French commercial shipping was also being attacked by some of these communities, leading to an even greater naval presence. So in 1839... Uh, French Captain Edouard Boué-Willoumé in the French brig La Malouane was uh, patrolling the coast for this very purpose. And after coming ashore to punish some local tribes for raiding commercial ships, uh, he ended up signing treaties with the head of one Mpongwe clan, king, who was known to them, I think, as King Dennis.
1: I assume not Denis. his real name.
0: <laughs> not his real name. I have his real name here, but I'm not king even going to attempt Dennis. to say it. It's in the show notes if you want to look it up. And-
1: choue coue There
0: you go. Good effort, That's Joe. That's a
1: better name than Dennis. Yeah. You imagine your name is that. So like, <laughs> we're going to call you Dennis. Den- Sorry to all the Dennis listening, but it's not... Maybe Denny, uh, if they're French. I, I maybe Denis, It's yeah. not Raponchumbo. Denny's yeah. not better.
0: Um, they, That was on the southern bank of the estuary uh, in 1839. And then two years later, King Louis... Uh, or uh, also known as Antigue du on the French uh, or the on the on the northern bank would uh, sign a similar treaty in 1841 uh, agreeing to end the slave trade in their territory and accept French sovereignty over their lands at least one of the treaties determined that the locals would be entitled to quote whatever the government of France judged to be an appropriate an- annual contribution for their consent to to this agreement so Ooh. Yeah, pretty much. We will pay you whatever we think, uh, you know, your consent is worth, and that's and not not a penny more. And
1: we're not willing to tell you what that is before you sign.
0: <laughs> exactly. These treaties gave the French uh, a foothold in the region, which paved the way for a future French protectorate, which we've seen before in uh, in numerous cases of signing contracts and and agreements saying we'll protect you, and eventually the, your protector becomes your colonial master, essentially. Mm-hmm. Separately during this time, uh, as you mentioned, Mark, I think there were groups of missionaries who were coming in from uh, both Britain and the US, and they've been making their presence known in the area. Uh, In 1842, a group of American missionaries established a Presbyterian mission uh, overlooking the uh, estuary, and that was the first settlement in what would later become Libreville, which is the capital uh, of modern-day Gabon, as we've talked about uh, in the intro. Or Freedom Town. It's translation, yeah. yeah. In eighteen forty-four, to counter the growing presence of the missionaries in the region and their growing influence, France brought in Roman Catholic missionaries to protect and promote uh, French influence among the Impongwe and the neighboring people. That's
1: proper French, yeah that's, yeah. that's how you do it. This was kind of part of a whole process where like there were ways indigenous society was based were like different ways of measuring status. Yeah, like you, your your notable member, your chiefs and your headmen and so on, and as all of this change towards Christianity and and trade with France moved in, there was a whole shift in what status meant, and it was being measured in European terms. So okay. a lot of notables kind of lost their influence within their own communities during this time. According to one of the books,
0: yeah, and also during this time we're 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 seeing increasing uh, influence from the Fang, as again you talked about, Mark. Um, I have a quote here from uh, a guy called Christopher Chamberlain, who wrote a paper called "The Migration of the Fang into Central Gabon during the 19th Century: A New Interpretation," and uh, I'll link that in the show notes. But he says during the 1840s. Uh, Two powerful groups established themselves in the Gabon estuary region. From the west, Europeans arrived in ships to establish a naval station, trade factories and missionary outposts, and from the east, an African group called the Fang migrated from the interior to settle on the upper reaches of the estuary. Of these two groups, historians have focused more on the Europeans regarding their arrival as a turning point in Gabonese history. The Fang, on the other hand, have received comparatively little attention from historians. This disproportion is unjustified because the large-scale movement of the Fang into central Gabon was no less significant than that of their seafaring counterparts from the west. So I think I think we've sort of already made that point. But yeah, the what
1: our histories are Eurocentric.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. We we focus more so on the on the European influence, but really the I Fang didn't
1: realize so to rethink everything
0: caused a massive cultural shift. And for the for the Fang themselves, their dealings with the French were particularly noteworthy because uh, apparently Fang legend had long prophesied the arrival of white warriors from the sea. Many of them, uh, according to uh, that paper I just cited, had moved westward for spiritual reasons as well as economic ones. Oh, And I just got another quick quote here from a guy called James F. Barnes from his book, Gabon Beyond the Colonial Legacy. Mm. He says, To the French, the Fang were the answer to their prayers for energetic partners in their economic enterprises. The French idealized the newcomers as noble savages in contrast to the Mpongwe, who had been spoiled by their involvement with civilization.
2: the The arrival
0: of the Fang in Gabon and their subsequent establishment as the single largest ethnic group in the country permanently altered the ethnic balance of power. The once-predominant Mpongwe suffered a lasting decline in their traditional hegemony in the Estuary region.
1: That's a really judgy take. It's like, oh, you guys have been spoiled by us spoiling them. <laughs> exactly,
0: <laughs> we, exactly. We like
1: the commerce of slavery. We like these new guys. Yeah. Oh they don't know all our tricks.
0: And therefore easier to deal with. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the combination of the slave trade suppression uh, and direct contact by Europeans sort of reduced the Mpongwe fortunes. But at the same time, missionary schools enabled young Mpongwe to work in the colonial government and in enterprise. Mm. And so their population uh, declined uh, steadily, uh, particularly as a result of a smallpox outbreak in the mid-1800s. And in 1884, its estimate lists only about 3,000 in Pengue were left in Gabon at that time. But they did tend to occupy sort of more esteemed positions within Gabonese society as opposed to their, their fan counterparts. Yeah,
1: and that continued into the 20th century as well.
0: Yeah, so a minority but a, a, an important one.
1: And just on those no- on those numbers, Luke, like yeah. Gabon's not very densely populated. Mm-hmm. Even today it's, I think, five people per square kilometer is the average population density. Right. So I know 3,000 doesn't sound like a lot of people, but maybe in the context of in bon the 1800s. Yeah, 3,000 people all in all in the one region. Yeah. Still influential.
0: For sure. In 1843, we have um, construction of Fort de Male, which is the uh, first permanent uh, French settlement on the estuary. And a Catholic mission was founded nearby in the following year. And France began to extend its influence further and further over the region in the next few years. And in 1846, France officially claimed, quote, all the land that seemed appropriate for the creation of military and agricultural establishments. Well, that sounds blinding. Nice and specific that sounds there. sounds specific. Exactly. In 1849, uh, French forces captured an illegal slave ship, the Eliza, and released the passengers at the mouth of the Como River. And the slaves named their settlement Libreville, or as I ah. mentioned earlier, Mark, uh, Freetown. And uh, it would grow rapidly to become the chief port in the colony of French Equatorial Africa, which is a concept that I'll, I'll talk about a little bit later. That's a much nicer story than, than what I thought.
1: Well, yeah. I don't know. I've read a little bit more on it and I'm not sure how keen they were on on being, being released. Being freed in that particular place. Oh, yeah, geez. I'd say
0: they probably just made the best of it. Um, but yeah, I mean... They were it, from
1: the kind of general region and the French had the slave ship and they're like, what do we do with the people? So, just let you know, them go. Yes, and maybe put them to work. Yep. Oh. oh but no. for wages. Hmm. So, okay. It's okay.
0: Right uh, so as the region began to be better explored, at least by Westerners, more and more explorers came to poke around the interior one of the first was an American, Paul Duchalou, in the 1850s. Uh, a few years later, a uh, Italian-born French explorer turns up hoping to map, map the Congo River. And his name was Savornyan de Braza. And we might, uh, anybody who's familiar with African geography might uh, recognize his last name. Yeah, The capital of the Congo, uh, or the Democratic Republic of the Congo as we know it now, uh, is named after him. So that'll tell you a little bit about... Um, about how he was thought of during this period. So between 1870 and 1880, France had become more and more focused on its colonial projects in Africa. And so the missions of de Braza were covered uh, very closely by French newspapers. Between 1862 and 1887, uh, Western explorers began to uncover and, and map the jungles of what would later be known as Gabon. Uh, and the most famous of these was de Braza, uh, who would use local Bantu help in his search for the headwaters of the Congo River. He explored throughout the interior, signing a number of treaties with uh, local tribes to the extent that the uh, press dubbed him Le Conquerant Pacifique, the peaceful nonsense. conqueror, for his success in ensuring French imperial expansion without waging war.
1: The, the Congo River is huge. It is. It's, it really is. It, it's, it's as much water, or I think, or, or maybe even more water than the Amazon pours out of it uh, it's not as long as the Nile. It's like the second longest river on uh, on Africa, hmm. but like it's an absurd amount of water. Yeah, it just drains Central Africa generally. Hmm. <laughs> um, so I'm I'm sure the exploring it kept like it kept him busy.
0: Yeah, I mean he he was certainly compared in a lot of the um, the kind of accounts that I read to Livingston
1: Livingstone, right? Yeah, who did East Africa? Yeah,
0: yeah he was he was kind of like the French. Uh, equivalent, his conquests up the Congo were uh, were certainly the stuff of uh,
1: colonial legend. Mm.
0: Uh, so throughout the 1800s, the French had difficulty extracting income from Gabon. Uh, although they controlled most of the land, they found themselves at odds with British, American and German interests in the region who were all more successful uh, and more ac- economically advantageous the The major exports of the Gabonese economy still were rubber and ivory, and would remain so up until the the start of World War One. Mm. But in eighteen eighty three, an ongoing struggle between uh, French and American missions, which had been kind of waging for some time, uh, was resolved uh, forcibly when the French government declared that French would be the sole language of instructions in mission schools, which essentially squeezed out many of the American and British missionaries, and you know forced them to move their um, their missions elsewhere, uh, because you know they they weren't gonna, I suppose, instruct in 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 French.
1: That's the last straw. We're not going to evangelize these people and save their souls if you have to speak French. Exactly.
0: <laughs> in order to boost its economic output, the French government implemented in Gabon what was known as a concessionary system, where private commercial interests were granted territorial monopolies, basically giving them a, a big tract of land and saying uh, you can sort of do whatever you want here. Uh, and that, of course, went terribly, as the companies devastated private settlements, agricultural production, and trade uh, in their quest for profits. In the early nineteen hundreds, uh, the the government of Paris dispatched De Braza himself to investigate the alleged abuses of power within these concession companies, and he substantiated a quote pattern of universal and persistent brutality, which led to the end of that system in uh, in, in Gabon. And then in nineteen ten. We have the formal establishment of French Equatorial Africa, which is a super team, if you will. Hey. Uh, An assembly of nations which were ruled by the French during this time, encompassing modern day Chad, the Central African Republic, the Republic of Congo and Gabon. And Libreville was uh, initially declared its capital, Uh, but I I, I believe it it later moved to to Brazzaville. Yeah,
1: Um, very briefly. Yeah, very briefly. I think Gabon had a bit of a chip on its shoulder about that yeah
2: okay or a chat on its shoulder what mm. <laughs> hilarious anyway
0: so we're into french equatorial africa side of things and uh into the 20th century so how's things going to progress from here joe
1: um in a in a fairly linear way uh unexpectedly resulting in independence i suppose okay i think ruling the bomb was always a bit messy as I mentioned earlier like the colonial administrators put a lot of work into trying to like put order in all the clans and ethnic groups and language groups and and stuff in a way that they could understand and never really had much success and something I found hilarious was that they really struggled with personal names like they were trying to do censuses and land registries they are like what's your name and people are like well... I mean on my mother's side my name is this and on my father's side my name is that right. but I've had my initiation so I'm called this now and they're like what, what's your name though? It's like, That's not really how we do things like
0: <laughs> Yeah
1: It, it depends uh, and then your name would change if you you know had a son or did some hunting feat of great note I don't know Um. so I think the French struggled with that Okay. and sort of shoehorned Gabonese people into their system with a loss of, you know, some cultural value.
2: Calling them all Michel, regardless of, of gender. Yeah. You, you will be Michelle. You will also be Michelle.
1: And a weird thing that created is, is there were ideas of ethnic groups that hadn't really existed before that are now a thing. So like certain people wouldn't have seen themselves as being on the same side politically before the French turned up and told them that they were this ethnic group. Okay, and now they'd be a political force in modern Gabon, right? So I think that's kind of an interesting side effect. Okay, uh, the French were kind of guided by this idea that we've met before of the the, the civilizing mission. I think it was yeah, marvelous, maybe super insulting, about. great. Uh, yeah, that you know the goal of you know obviously the French were the most enlightened society in in the universe. Of course, uh,
2: wine for breakfast. Uh,
0: and they had to spread that enlightenment beyond the borders their of France duty <laughs>
1: to to bring civilization and
0: joking aside it was it was um from what I remember from the last time we talked about this, it was seen as like a divine mission essentially it was a yeah. it was their god you know a God was directing them to to nobleize the savages right exactly
1: they they had their liberty and equality and fraternity and and christianity and so the elites of society were granted citizenship under this civilizing mission. So that, that is a, a, a difference to... Like, there was a kind of an assimilationist approach by France. It's right. different to how Britain and Germany approached colonialism. Where there was this idea that, like, oh, yeah, if you become French enough, you're French. Yep. To a point. To a point, yeah. You know, it, it has something to be said. for Not it, real not French,
0: enough. but... Uh...
1: But the remaining people who weren't given citizenship, they lived under the Indigena system, which was where they had minimal rights. And, you know, uh, that wasn't great and was kind of a, a focal point of political unease.
0: Mm. You can be French, but you can't have rights like
1: that. That'd be too much. Well, you, you're, your elites can be French, but yeah. not all of you. Mm. Um, great. And the educated elite were expected to be Christian, westernized. There was a group, a growing group of of called Metis who were you know, mixed race. Hmm. Um, quite a large amount of actual French people lived there as well, like first generation French, and the, the the Metis had had more status than most people, alongside some of the Mupongwe who've been commercially active for a long time. They would have, and they would have sent their kids off to France to be educated even. Hmm. Right. On the other hand, there was occasional armed resistance throughout the early 20th century. It kind of peters out around the 20s and was usually regionally isolated. But, you know, there was Punu resistance led by a guy called Mbombe, uh, who I think South Africa named a tank after. So I just thought that was Okay, interesting. pretty cool. And interesting. there was the, the, the Fang Uprising in 1903 led by a man new, uh, by a man Atole uh, in Moya Nogue, so that's halfway up the big river. So the that the the river at Libreville isn't the biggest river, the Ogue is much bigger and goes all the way into the interior of the country. If
2: this is the first time you're hearing it, it's because I decided not to try to pronounce it.
1: Yes. Uh he was betrayed by a, a fellow fang and defeated. So there wasn't a clear path of like we want freedom or we want independence. There was just occasional flaring of uprising. And like right. for instance, uh you know, King Makoko of the the Teke and Ziku Kingdom signed the treaty with um, France to become a vassal as a king in like the 1880s. So like there were different approaches to dealing with colonialism and by the 20s things were kind of just in a colonial mode uh, throughout much of French Equatorial Africa, but Gabon specifically. Because it did did retain a sort of a, it wasn't one unitary country, French Equatorial Africa. It was kind of a, a federation of
0: Okay. The term is super team, Joe?
1: Yes, sorry, a super team. Yeah. Uh with each of the members having some internal rules. There are a few cultural changes during this era that I I think are worth highlighting. So the N'Gil Society and Fang culture was an important kind of initiation society. You joined it through a ceremony and then you opposed witchcraft and had a judicial function of like tracking down people who were doing witchcraft. And there was kind of, you know, beatings and ritual killings.
0: Are they they witch hunters? Is that what you're telling me, Joe?
1: Or vigilantes, depending on your point of view. They can be both. And they would sort of be a masked, anonymous sort of judge and executioner. So the French didn't like that. And in 1910, they outlawed uh, that aspect of fan culture. Oh, all right. Uh, Because, you know, they were... That's not very French. ...extrajudicially killing people. Um, Not a guillotine in sight. Oh. Okay. Although
2: you do think, well, I was thinking Joan of Arc. <laughs> it's like the yeah. French weren't exactly against, you know, uh, going after witches, uh, even if they were national heroes. She's a successful um, woman. The, Get her. The <laughs> French also introduced Masonic
1: <laughs> lodges, to Bond, so similar space but European. Uh, so from the 1920s, they accepted Gabonese members into that initiation society, and it's also become important in politics. So these kind of secret societies were a pre-existing thing, and when Freemasonry was an option, people were like, "Yeah, okay, I get this. I join the club. I do the rituals. I I can chat business with my my fellow initiates. Brilliant." Uh, the dialogue and the right equatorial lodges are are quite important. Uh, like President Bongo will talk about later insisted all his party members join Freemasons. So uh, okay, that level of importance, and. I, I did mention this earlier, but at some point in the 20th century, unclear when, the Babongo people completely adopted a settled lifestyle with a little bit of hunting and Bantu language of their neighbours. So now they're, they're not as short as they used to be. So it's it's very difficult to know that they're a, a pygmy group anymore. But they, they still are. Um, in my foreshadowing, I talked about uh, a polymath who had some influence on Gabon. Oh, indeed. This was uh, Albert Schweitzer, born in 1875 in Alsace. Uh, I think was Alsace German or French at that point. I think it was yes, because it was an issue for him in World War One. It was he was a German citizen, okay. Initially, <laughs> but yeah, it had just swapped so like it had just become German like the year he was born. Okay, uh, Alsace. We should probably do an episode in Alsace. Fascinating place. It just keeps popping back and forth between um mm. between. In Germany and obviously he would have spoken Assassian which is a kind of a a German dialect as his mother tongue. Um I'm not going to go through his whole life because it was quite detailed. He was a musician, he was a theologian, he was a, an evangelical uh, Lutheran like preacher. Okay. Did his PhD in like the like, the historical Jesus, I think. Uh wrote many best-selling books on that issue. Um a Bach enthusiast. Uh, and
2: Sorry, just doing do your PhD on Jesus. Seems <laughs> like a bit 101.
1: <laughs> <laughs> on, on, on the quest for the historical Jesus. I know, I know, Bush.
2: Come on. Christ in the Bible, you
1: know? There is nobody else in all of Christendom. <laughs> oh, he wrote a lot about the mysticism of St. Paul as well. Um, all right. So, you know. I'm back
2: on board. Give a pass for that then. He
1: had a calling, he thought, to join the Paris Mission Society on their missions to Africa.
2: Joe, Joe, when you say he thought, it suggests that he gets this very wrong, but I'll, I just wanted to get that... No, no, just... Of foreboding in thing, there. Yeah. Um, okay.
1: The Paris Mission Society didn't agree because he was a... Well, there we go. ...theologically a little bit different to them. So I think they were Protestant, uh, but they were different. They weren't... Excuse D- me, they weren't... Different flavor. Friends. Okay. And they weren't keen on this Albert Schweitzer... Being a preacher for them in Gabon.
0: Too many, too many funny ideas.
1: So he came up with another idea. He decided to, having no prior experience, uh, enroll in a medicine degree, and become a doctor.
0: Well, that's a that's a change of pace.
1: Yeah, uh, and so four years later, fully trained, he went back to the mission society and said, "I still have a calling. I'd like to be a doctor on your ha. mission."
0: Please, turn me down now. <laughs>
1: And eventually, they they accepted him. He was very persistent. Okay. So j- just in case I don't mention it, he, he, the way that Bach was recorded uh, by microphones nowadays is all was all set up by Schweitzer. The Schweitzer method of recording. Oh, I he bloody it heard Sebastian of Bath this now that you
2: say it. Yeah.
1: The Schweitzer method, uh, not what you expect in a guy who becomes a doctor and moves to Gabon, but this was you know one of his side hustles. Was, wait, wait, um, wait when, when
2: you say that, is it about like the kind of the arrangement of like the microphones and stuff? The arrangement yeah. of
1: the microphones and the kinds of microphones and how they're per- perpendicular to each other and all that kind of thing. That's cool.
2: Some yeah. dusty bit of my brain is, is springing to life on this one.
1: Yep. Um, so he moved to Gabon in 1913 with his wife, set up a hospital in Lambarene. In Moyen-Ogué, so again, up on the Iguay River. Okay. That uh, we've mentioned multiple times, uh, myself and Mark.
2: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Let's see if it makes the edit.
1: And he, you know, had lots of interesting tropical diseases he'd never treated before as a, a man who decided to be a doctor three years ago. Uh, that he had <laughs> to treat like malaria and sleeping sickness and, you know, all that kind of thing. Um, but he, run, he ran the hospital basically until his death in 65, occasionally, like he had to go, he was deported during World War I because he was, in air quotes, German, despite right. with the Paris Mission Society, okay. and ended up at the end of the war kind of becoming French through his parents' okay. historical citizenship, and, and then he could go back. So he had a few times back in Europe, but he largely lived in um, in Lam- Lamborena for most of the rest of his life, um, and he won a Nobel Peace Prize in 1952. Uh, oh. For this and his kind of philosophy on the value of human life and so on, all right, uh, and use use his prize money to to build a leper colony. So,
2: all right, pretty pretty good guy, I then.
1: yeah, yeah. Well, I've I've seen it said he was definitely anti-colonial. He thought that we had done lots of bad things to Africa. Well, he thought <laughs> controversial, controversial
2: right. views there, Albert.
1: But he, he does get a bit of a rep as being very paternalistic. So there's this com- okay. famous quote of his, like, you know, I say to the African, you are my brother, but my younger brother. <laughs> okay. So, you know, it, I I feel like, you know, the way people have um people's opinions of Mother Teresa have changed over the years. Indeed, yeah. Sure. I feel like it's got a bit of that flavor to it mm. of... Uh, he definitely did, did great things, but it was you know there wasn't a, a a not there wasn't an African leader of his hospital till the two thousands. Right. Uh, it was always Europeans would come and work there, which is great, but it's um, still better than the know, it, the average. It is it is what it is. It, it's a, a complex. It's still yeah. kind of colonialist in its worldview, yeah. even if it is trying to fix colonialism.
2: I wonder if the fact that he was a doctor kind of contributed to that because by its nature you are in a position of greater information and greater power yeah. you have yeah. patients and and often you know if, if he's coming with even somewhat modern medicine i mean modern medicine for the time compared to what might have actually been available locally similarly mm-hmm. that would have kind of reinforced it as well so you know, do- doctors and god complexes are not necessarily you know opposite ends <laughs> of the scale
1: mm. so that that's that's right, Schweitzer, interesting guy yeah World War One touched Gabon a little bit, uh, so there's the Cameroon campaign against German Cameroon, which is modern day Cameroon, uh, and parts of northern Gabon. So, uh, basically, the Allies carved that up between them. Charming. Um, the German commanders didn't do great. It t- it did take a year or two, but uh, yeah, eventually it's partitioned between Britain and France after nineteen sixteen, and the the northern bit of Gabon it became the northern bit of Gabon. After that, post-war, the elite Gabonese started going to France for education, and so they started getting ideas about independence, liberal democracy, uh, self-determination, you know, all these things that the French were keen on. Dangerous stuff, yeah. Um, And nationalist parties started cropping up. They usually weren't particularly anti-French or pro-socialist, but they were sort of pro, you know, self-determination, involved in ruling themselves. Yeah. But not necessarily, you know kill the oppressor so it was a bit more yeah it was a bit more subtle a bit of a slower boil there weren't any real violent uprisings pro-independence it just kind of was a push of developing civil society self-determination would be nice two guys called a big man and anchui they were two order one veterans who were based in nice and they set up the first uh, gabonese political movements Including, uh, they had many, many newspapers and, and political parties, but the Ligue des droits de l'homme et des citoyens, the, the kind of human, human rights and citizen rights league, uh, was a big one, it was a little bit left leaning, kind of made the government nervous. But these were sort of first kind of Gabonese political organizations rather than like specific tribal groups and so on. So it was kind of an emerging idea of Gabon as a political entity, maybe. There's a few people who will become important in the independent uh cut their teeth during the early 20th century. So Leon Mba mm. was an estri Fang customs agent. Uh and he was part of this kind of Catholic educated elite, son of a merchant. Oh, and, and his uh, his father had briefly been the hairdresser to uh, to Mr. Brazza from earlier.
0: Oh, oh wow,
2: okay. Don't, cool. I don't
1: I don't have any more on that. So in the thirties and forties he became quite influential in Libreville. He was made like a like a section chief of of a of the Fang area of Libreville at one point, but he rubbed friendship the wrong way with his pro-Indigenous agitation and links to the, the League of Rights and stuff. Oh, and Comintern as well. He had connections to the Communist Internationale. And embezzlement. He did a lot of embezzlement. So that was all a problem. Uh but what they got him on was he was involved in Buiti, you know, that uh secret society I mentioned earlier okay the the um, narcotics and ancestor worship and so on oh yeah yeah and um, a woman or maybe two women were murdered by some of his associates in his Buiti society oh no and the authorities decided to kind of hold him complicit in, in that right uh, and he was exiled to what's now the Central African Republic so he's kind of out of the way for a decade or two until World War II, basically. But through his Buiti connections, uh, he was able to get support from Fang and Mienne people because that was a kind of a cross-cultural right. secret society. Sure. World War Two, Gabon initially backed the Vichy government. Um. Well, sorry, initially the commander said, yes, the Free French, uh, like all of the other okay. French, Equatorial, African colonies. But... Uh, economic interests, and the conservative bishop of Libreville, uh, Louis Tardy, convinced him that he was wrong, and he backed the Vichy uh. government. Uh, so, you know, de Gaulle had this address where he kind of pleaded to the nations, you know, yeah. to rally around free France, yeah. and a lot of equatorial Africa did, uh, or at least the people who got to make the decisions, except Gabon. So, Gabon was the odd one out, right. and... I think the chip on their shoulder about Libreville being kind of mistreated by Brazzaville was part of this. Oh, interesting. That you know, Gabonos felt like it was playing second fiddle in French Equatorial Africa, and so this was potentially. We'll show
0: you, De Gaulle. Yeah, I'll show you, Dad. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Or maybe they thought that that would win. You know, I'm joining a gang. She would be the winning side. So De Gaulle actually was arrived, in, I think Cameroon, and you know, started actually running. Equatorial africa as as his sovereign territory as free france which okay. i hadn't really appreciated that was quite important you know he mm. wasn't hanging out in london anymore he was in french territory as its sovereign yeah and Co- colonel de clerc was uh, dispatched for the free french landed in cameroon and went to claim the colony and it didn't take that long by november 1940 uh gabon had been brought in line with its neighbors right an administration of the Federation of colonies was given to a De Gaulle loyalist called Felix Ibué, who I think had been the governor of Chad and had a very early declared protocol. He was given control of all of this area and he's um, quite a historic guy. He was a Guyanese-born career administrator and uh, this appointment as as Governor General made him the first black French Governor General of anywhere huh. in the colonies. All right. So he was a, a grandson of slaves in Guyana, and he was now ruling a lot of Central Africa on behalf of France uh from nineteen forty 1940 to nineteen forty-four. So he he seems to be quite an important figure in changing colonial policy for for free France. Cool. He wrote a new indigenous policy for French Equatorial Africa and set out like he, he kind of suggested that they should respect African traditions rather than trying to assimilate Africans into French traditions, support traditional leaders, develop the existing social structures, you know, improve working conditions, that kind of crazy ideas. Mm. Uh, and it did serve as the basis for the Brazzaville Conference of French colonial governors held in forty four, uh, and led to many changes. Ibué had this um, kind of talent for identifying talented young African administrators and civil servants and taking them under his wing. And one of these was Jean-Hilaire Obam, who we're definitely going to mention later. Yeah. He got promoted to the European Civil Service by Abue. We worked with him at the, the Brazzaville Conference. And he, interestingly, was raised by um, by Leon Mba's uh, brother. So he was orphaned and raised by Mba's brother. They're both fang. Oh. And Mba got him a job in in customs also so they're quite connected though they will become rivals later and he was always considered being more focused on the the fan community and its its particular interests post-war Gabon started getting secondary schools which was a first in in this part of Africa so that that sort of helped to develop existing social structures now we get a series of kind of important elections like a 1951 Obama uh this protégé of um, Bouet was elected to the French Parliament. So there were now African delegates in the French uh, Parliament. Wow, amazing. Great. Good. The indigenous system has ended, uh, and African deputies from different colonies got to know each other in France and traded ideas about the philosophies of what the future might look like. In 1956, the Loi Cadre uh, facilitated representative assemblies to be set up in... Uh, we haven't talked about West Africa, because. Why would we? But, you know, that's the the Federation of Colonies around Senegal. Right. And also in uh, Equatorial Africa, which is where we're focused now. And some of the members of those territorial assemblies will be nominated by the chiefs. So that's kind of trying to build in some of the indigenous culture into the colonial government. So I assume also to
2: make it more effective, because I assume if if there's still chiefs, that that whole structure still exists. So to actually get them involved,
0: involved, you know, meet them halfway. Yep.
1: That the French Union was created, which is kind of a Commonwealth-style association.
0: Right. Somewhat doomed. Hey, we all have similar scars, right?
1: <laughs> yep. So, uh, leon Mba had tried to get elected to, to the French Assembly and, and not succeeded, but he was elected Mayor of Libreville in 1956, um, allowing him to build a broader constituency beyond his Fang background, including... French uh, colonists, particularly those in the timber industry, who liked him, and Mpongwe leader Paul uh, Gondioult, and they founded the Bloc Démocratique Gabonais. So this new political party won the most seats in the next territorial assembly, although not the most votes. Uh, There was a bit of gerrymandering went on. But that allowed Mbatt to become the the effective leader, the vice president of the government, but uh, the head of government was like a French appointee. Lieutenant Governor. So Leonaba is becoming kind of the leading figure. He's able to build these coalitions across groups and has isn't as anti-French as he might be, which makes the French more comfortable with him. Then in 1958, the fault lines of everything in the French Empire were laid bare by the Algerian Revolution. Mm, right. Which destabilized everything. Uh, the, the Fourth Republic ended. So the Gaul returned to power, founded the Fifth Republic, dissolved the French Union, sundering all the legal ties to the colonies. Independence is kind of thrust upon the colonies in this kind of traumatic moment for France as an empire. It's not something I've read into in great degree of detail, but this this doesn't seem to have been planned or even asked for. Okay. By a lot of colonies.
2: I remember reading about the, the Algerian you know the war basically and like mm. it, it is it is just nuts like it's really crazy stuff I, I think that there was there was points at which france was itself worried about being partially invaded from algeria that was mm-hmm. i mean wow. potentially scaremongering amongst them but like they they were worried about that they were they were genuinely worried um and like it, the fighting was really savage uh it, it was yeah it was kind of i guess their their vietnam i guess but but if vietnam was in cuba like imagine
1: yeah that. They, they 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 also had a Vietnam around this time I guess well. they also had a Vietnam yeah uh, it which, was Vietnam there was some major battle there that was also quite quite a catalyst for for like let's get rid of this empire now and quickly please yes this isn't working so both Mbogne and Baume had favoured a continuing relationship with France uh, and they weren't really sure complete independence was in Gabon's best interests so they were rivals but they agreed on this uh, and indeed, there was a referendum about the future relationship and splitting up was decisively opposed by like 80% of the population. Okay. But one by one, all the other colonies opted out, so Tunisia, Niger, Senegal, Ivory Coast, and uh, they all opted for independence. And Gabon was against any arrangement where they'd be left. And Gabon is
0: being pushed out of the house when it doesn't want to leave, essentially. right?
1: right. And they were against any arrangement that would see them back in the super team. Mm. Because uh, they didn't feel valued in the super team, so they ended up um, being just kind of becoming independent when uh, the transitionary period ran out. And uh, in seventeenth August nineteen sixty, Leon and Ba, who was the the highest ranking member in the government, became the the president of the Republic of Gabon. Wow! Sprung into existence.
0: I think the only other place I can think of that we We've talked about previously that became independent without really wanting to or planning to was Singapore. So that's, yeah. that's always an interesting one. Like you know, usually you have people who are pushing for independence for a number of years or even fighting for it, and yeah, just to to have a country become independent almost against its will. Well, actually, against its will. If, if you know, given the the results of that poll that you just spoke, spoke about, Joe, it's 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 uh, it's really interesting.
1: With independence, a new flag was adopted, which is a very simple and respectable uh, horizontal tricolour. Yep. Uh, it is green, yellow, and blue from top to bottom. And these apparently represent green for the, the forests and the natural resources, yellow for the equator and the sun, which cuts through the middle of the flag, and blue for the sea, because there's a lot of sea. And, it's a very uh, dull flag. Um. But, I mean, you would recognise it from a distance, and a schoolchild could easily draw it, which I think are... Important. Those are the tenants like, of a good flag, I guess. It's you're just, not going to mix it not, up with any other flag. There, I've not seen yeah. that color combination anywhere else. Yeah, so I guess. I, I, I'm happy. It's not um,
0: particularly exciting, but um, no. it's also very functional.
1: The presidential standard has those colors on a shield, but with two Black Panthers uh, supporting it, which is is cooler. Okay,
2: that's way cooler. That's much I mean,
1: more that exciting. Flag. Yeah. Union, travail, justice is the motto. Union, work, and justice. It's I mean, it's certainly model. a
0: lot better than the first flag that they adopted, which had the French tricolor in the top left corner, uh, <laughs> oh, which uh, and, and then the other sort of blocks of color. You have French tricolor in the top left corner, then a block of green filling the same space on the right, then a yellow stripe, and then a big blue stripe at the bottom,
1: which yeah. looks... Flags are always made better when you take the flag of your colonial overlord across yeah. the corner. Yeah. It's a little yeah. sticker they left there. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah no solid flag Uh, welcome to independent Gabon
0: give it a 6 out of 10 maybe could have more needs more flair more panthers please exactly
1: do a toast oh Oh. is it going wait
0: is it recording sure oh (laughs) Hello listeners he, using his, he, his soft bedroom voice again. His, his, his library
2: Pervert voice yeah. yeah
1: Hello listeners I'm behind you uh... So, so uh, as you might gather We're not uh, in our studios As usual Three of us have met up In a pub in Ireland For the first time In a pandemic Challenging stereotypes Wherever we see them mm, Indeed uh, Just want to thank you all For sticking with us Through these hard times Yep And uh, and we hope you get to meet up with uh, the
0: your, people
1: you do a podcast with. soon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, In particular, Luke, do you want to thank the important people? <laughs>
0: oh, yeah. Uh, so we want to say very much uh, thank you to the, the patrons of the podcast. Uh, definitely your Patreon funds are not going into uh, the drinks that we're enjoying at the moment that's
1: the next round yeah
0: and yeah if you would like to support the show and get access to some bonus content and uh, hear your name on the show in the future you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcasts
1: we should do one on Dublin Dublin's cool Mm. and something we are doing is writing postcards right now to our um $10 $10 level backers
0: Zelda, $10 and
2: above uh, What's patients. that level? Is it Neil Armstrong? Neil Armstrong, Armstrong Yes, <laughs> yes the Neil Which Armstrong we level, uh, You
1: know The deal was that We would do this When we went on our holidays We'd send postcards To people from exotic places That hasn't been happening So Dublin will have yeah. to do yeah. um, So I hope You are looking forward To your uh, to your postcards guys
0: Thanks very much for listening
1: Thank you Bye Bye, Bye.
0: Okay, so post-independence, we have two main political bodies who are in existence. The Bloc Democratique Gabonais, or BDG, uh, a more conservative party led by Leon Amba, and the Union Democratique et Sociale Gabonaise, the UDSG, a more liberal party led by J.H. As, uh, as we as we mentioned previously, Joe. In the first elections held after independence, neither party was able to establish a majority, However, the BDG had the support of the legislative deputies and of uh, the French uh, Republic. So Mba was named as prime minister, and his deputy was a guy called El Haj Omar Bongo Ondimba. He
1: was he was called Albert Bernard at this point. Okay, Albert Bernard Bongo, Albert Denis Bernard. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he, he, he would upgrade his name. Um,
0: but uh, the name you need to remember is Omar Bongo, uh, who will become a, a, a big figure in Japanese history. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about him in a little bit. But under a rule, uh, freedom of the press suffered quite significantly. Freedom of, of expression was clamped down upon uh, very stereotypical authoritarian type stuff. Um, and despite wanting to show off Gabon's democratic values in order to as- in attract uh, foreign investment, Mbaugh wasn't too keen on all that democracy stuff. So uh, he soon changed the constitution to install a powerful president and then assumed that role himself. Uh, uh charming. Yeah, the power of other political parties uh, was uh, slowly and steadily eroded.
1: Oh, oh, so I think I got that wrong when we transitioned to independence. He was the prime minister and there was no president. Okay. And, and and he created a, he oh, created a presidency that, that makes sense. and then said
0: I'm the president now. Cool. There's a a French secret service report which I'll uh, into uh, mba which I'll, I'll I'll quote from here. He said he regarded himself as a truly democratic leader. Nothing irritated him more than beca- being called a dictator. Still, Mba wasn't happy until he had the constitution rewritten to give him virtually all power and transforming the parliament into a high-priced scenery that could be bypassed as needed. So wow, <laughs> that pretty much sums up what you need to know. Uh, About how things went immediately post-independence. He's really sensitive about being called a dictator because he is a dictator. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. He was elected. (laughs) He was. Uh, But uh, in 1964, he attempted to institute a one-party system. Definitely not a dictator. uh, And the army decided they'd seen enough and rose up against him in a coup on the evening of 17th of February. The plotters seized the presidential palace, uh, arresting around 150 politicians and assured citizens... Via Radio Libreville, that the country's pro France policies would remain. They then installed the opposition leader, uh, Obame, who had seemingly not been aware of any planned coup, as president. Uh, And I'm sure he was quite nervous (laughs) at that turn of events. Mba was allowed to address the public via the radio and he said the following D Day is here. The injustices are beyond measure. These people are patient, but their patience has limits. It has come to a boil. Um, and funny enough, Bongo was the one who informed the French government about the coup. Which would help his relationship with them going forward.
1: This all sounds quite civilized. Like, oh, of course you can address your people. I mean, we don't want to be rude. Really, like, we're having a coup, but like, we're not. We're not. We're not animals. Yeah. So, like, yeah. Go on the radio, tell people what's happening. Exactly. It sounds very gentlemanly.
0: I, I believe it, there was uh, there was very little bloodshed, if any, uh, in the coup. But um, uh, at least in the in the in the taking of the the government by the plotters initially. Right. But the French believed that there was little public support for the coup, and uh, having signed an agreement with Caban upon independence. Charles de Gaulle opted to send in French paratroopers to put down the coup. Oh, right. And they arrived from Dakar and Brazzaville before the plotters even had time to form an alternative government. Uh, and at 10.50 a.m. the next day, oh, wow. uh, the first 50 troops landed in Libreville Air- uh, International Airport. And apparently they, they didn't even have time to kind of blockade the runway to stop oh my landing. God. Rookie <laughs> move. So the troops disembarked safely and they then secured the runway and were followed by hundreds more. Uh, and soon more than 600 troops began to sweep through Libreville, meeting sporadic resistance, uh, and they later attacked a military base where the rebels eventually surrendered after running out of ammunition. Right.
1: I, I, I do remember reading with this that like the French had let a coup in an, in one of the neighboring colonies go off unchecked, so I think there was kind of an expectation okay. that they weren't ah, okay. going to honor their agreements. But as you say here, like Charligold made a made a... Clearly made a calculation based on what he thought the support was and maybe the impact yeah. on I think Obama was less pro French, like uh was quite good at dealing with the timber industry and stuff. Hmm. So there was a lot to be said for nipping this in the bud, but maybe hadn't been the case in other countries. For sure. But they had a reason for thinking they might get away. With. So
0: the leader of the rebel forces was executed and Mba was reinstated as president. And in the immediate aftermath of the coup, uh, unexpectedly, there were riots in the streets. Uh, and there was also rumors uh, that were spread of U.S. involvement in putting down the coup, which have never been substantiated.
1: As opposed to all of the French troops who were actually there.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Elections, which had been scheduled for February and were the original cause of the coup, uh, went ahead in April of that year. And the French insisted that opposition candidates be permitted to run. Uh, but there were a number of... Let's call them irregularities, uh, including leading opposition figures disappearing and reports of voters being bribed at the polling
1: stations. That does sound irregular.
0: Despite this, the opposition party still won 46% of the vote. Right. uh, But secured only 16 of 47 seats. (laughs) What? Yep. (laughs) That's a thing that happened. Anyway, late in 1966, the constitution was revised to provide for automatic secession of the vice president should the president die in office. In March 1967, Leon Mba and Omar Bongo, then known as um, Albert Bongo, still were elected president and vice president, with the BDG winning all 47 seats in the national, national Assembly. And that is a pattern that will repeat itself over and over and over again. Mba died of cancer later that year, and so Omar Bongo then became uh, president. And he moved quickly to consolidate power. His major innovation was the dissolution of all political parties and their replacement by a single party the Parti Démocratique Gabonaise, or PDG.
1: That's the best Uh, name for a party that is the only party. Yeah,
0: exactly. I got a quote here again from James F. Barnes, uh, his book Gabon Beyond the Colonial Legacy, which I would recommend. It's available on archive.org. He says, By the late 1960s, sales of petroleum, uranium and manganese earned millions of francs for the national treasury. Participation and cooperation were rewarded handsomely. And the president was particularly generous to those who expressed their uh, personal and political allegiance to his regime. Bongo's decision in 1968 to dissolve the existing political parties and replace them with the PDG was accepted with equanimity by most Gabonese. In actuality, the parties had never evolved beyond the personalities and ambitions of their leaders or established deep organization or ideological roots in the populace. Bongo's policy of national reconciliation, supported by de- gestures of clemency and magnanimity, appeared to serve his goals. He received overwhelming support for his policies at the first congress of the PDG in 1970. He's really consolidating the po- that power. Right. Uh, he also expanded the size of his cabinet, which at times included almost fifty different ministers. Wow, that's a lot of ministers. Uh, all with different areas of responsibility in a very small country. All, all of whom uh, were were very well paid and were uh, very loyal to uh, Bongo. I see. He also cultivated strong ties to the military. With critical command positions being assigned to loyalists uh, to protect against the possibility of another coup. Right. French forces also maintained a visible presence in Gabon during this period, and in addition, the fifteen hundred strong presidential guard patrolled the presidential palace in Libreville. Wow. So That's
1: a lot. Um, just uh, Omar Bongo's unusual name for a, a Fang politician. Sure. Um, was a, a kind of a choice he, he, he converted yeah converted to islam in 1973 while visiting libya Ah, and there's not a lot of muslims in in gabon There never really have been like there there's a fair bit of islam in like africa above the sahara sure but this far south it's not really any yeah. history of that numbers did tick up a little bit after he he converted but it's, it's just kind of interesting that there i read somewhere some suspicion that it was possibly to ingratiate himself with you know, other large oil producing countries. Well, they're in OPEC. They were mm. in OPEC for, for the 70s uh, and yeah, 80s. Yeah, exactly. They, they joined yeah. OPEC. So, it, you know, there may have been some motivations like that, but it's, uh, yeah, his, his son also has a Muslim name. So it's, uh, they, they stuck to it. And the title El Haji means he's been to the Hajj, presumably. But it's just interesting that he, he was just visiting Muammar Gaddafi, as everyone does, and decides, you know what? I'd like to join your religion.
0: I mean we have established at this point That it's you know If you want to get on this podcast You have to visit Muammar Gaddafi Yeah indeed You know There was a big queue uh, Beside Tony Blair and Charles Taylor (laughs) Anyway in April 1975 The office of the vice president was abolished And replaced by the office of the prime minister Who had no right to automatic succession Uh, This is ridiculous But anyway Okay Bongo was re-elected president, big surprise, in December 1979 and November uh, 1986 to seven year terms. Using the PDG as a tool to submerge the regional and tribal rivalries that uh, divided Gabon for decades, Bongo sought to forge a national movement in support of the government's development policies. Legislative elections were held in 1980 and the PDG won 84 out of 84 contested seats in the National Assembly. Again, big surprise when there's only really one party you can vote for. The following year, uh, university students began anti-government protests and in response, President Bongo closed the university for a number of weeks to quash the protests. That'll do it. Some 29 individuals were arrested and sentenced to prison for anti-government activities in November of 1982. Signs of unrest were becoming harder and harder to ignore. Uh, In 1972, the government had arrested and convicted a number of faculty at the the National University for their alleged participation in the so-called professor's plot and the participants were accused of organising Marxist and Leninist cells and circulating so-called subversive literature I assume the French wouldn't have been too keen on that so it probably would have been no. uh, uh, you know,
2: also a bit of a carrot I, I guess for the French
1: I feel like university just wasn't that exciting in the in the uh, mid-2000s it really wasn't not as exciting I mean, as this there was none of my lecturers tried to induct me into a you know Uh, political movement and circulating subversive literature it just wasn't it's mostly chemistry to be honest
0: (laughs) but you didn't do an arts degree Joe yeah maybe that was
1: my mistake
0: I think so in early 1985 legislative elections again saw the PDG win 111 out of 111 elective seats in The National Assembly it keeps getting bigger, and in August of that year, an air force captain was convicted of a uh, by a military court of plotting to assassinate the president and publicly executed. Oh, wow! There was also a growing unrest from Gabonese citizens in France, uh, this time about the brutality of the Bongo government. Mm. And then in 1989, the Bongo regime experienced two attempted coups, uh, neither of which were particularly threatening, and neither of which I could find a lot of detail on, right? So, I don't know if they're yeah, I mean, I don't know if they were, shall we say, um, somewhat uh, played up by the government. But both of them were, were put down very quickly. Uh, the first in September was backed by mercenaries who were flown into Gabon, but were discovered very soon after by security forces. And the second resulted in two accused plotters being arrested and dying under mysterious circumstances in police custody. Uh, uh, so coming into the 1990s, things are are not looking too democratic in uh, in Gabon. Yeah, so we're gonna insert uh, some music here from Patience Damani, who is the ex-wife of uh, Omar Bongo and the mother of the current president Ali Bongo uh, of Gabon. So um, very
1: successful pop musician. Mm, so enjoy that. Mm-hmm.
0: Maman, il y a un
2: sourire. Pour un rassaoué, les verts ne le rendent pas par le mal. Au Timo Bicho Kali,
0: les jaloux, écoutez. En pour ma balle, à il y a un On les connaît.
1: Nya, 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 nya,
2: You want to tell us a bit about what happened next, Mark? Things are already pretty bad and are going to get uh, precipitously worse, I would say. So in 1990, Gabon was in a period of austerity, uh, so that... Obviously, led to the country being a bit of a tinderbox. Everyone was kind of afraid uh, for 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 their economic prosperity going forward. This is caused by low oil prices at the time, and the Gabonese economy was really, really dependent on the price of oil.
1: At the expense of everything else. I think, oh yeah. Like, I think farming went severely underdeveloped, and so like a lot of stuff had to be imported that could have been grown. It, it's yeah.
2: it's um. I heard this thing about kind of the 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 curse of oil that so many countries only develop oil infrastructure because well why would you do anything else, and as a result they're completely yeah. boom and bust because they they just kind of are floated along by the price of oil. I think um, no- Norway had two massive oil crashes before they eventually went. Oh, actually, this isn't really sustainable, uh, and we're kind of the first country to really make a big push um, to do other stuff, but uh, it it it's hard. Anyway, Omar Bongo. He appealed to opposition groups, um, including a group called Les Boucheron, uh, the Woodcutters, who were a fan group, to revive a multi-party political system. So the idea was, you know, look, let's let's all just get together, sort out Gabon's problems, really kind of a call for unity kind of thing, which is usually the kind of the call, calls for unity is usually done by some awful tyrant. <laughs> anyway, 23rd of May, 1990, uh, Joseph uh, Renjambé, he was the leader of the Port Gentile-based opposition party, Parti Gabonais du Progrès. Um, and he was a really interesting guy. I was reading about him. He, he had left Gabon when he was young, as uh, so, so many, you know, uh, young Gabonese did. But he studied in Prague, not in, in France. And he actually witnessed the events of the Prague Spring in 1968, which was, you know, violently put down by the oh. Soviets. But um, Oh, wow. So yeah, yeah. He, it, it kind of mm. it made him a bit of a sort of a natural revolutionary. Uh, interesting guy uh, got assassinated in Libreville, uh, resulting in huge riots in his kind of home city of Port Gentil. This was um, a massive escalation, and it, it led to a, a French reaction as well. The French consul was taken hostage. 1,800 of the 2,000 French expatriates in the city were repatriated to France. And the French government sent several hundred troops to Gabon to protect French citizens. So this was really a sort of... Um, wow. I don't know if there was actually really a precedent for the, the level of kind of French involvement and French reaction that was there. I mean, I, I don't think there was. This was a huge, um, in, in some ways, stuff like this is always, I guess, a bit of a humiliation for the country because it's, you know, the old colonial power has to kind of come in and sort things out. And it's, it's kind of showing still how, how in, you know, involved they are in, in Gabonese society. In October of that year, uh, riots again during the elections Elections, which gave Omar Bongo a slim majority of sixty-three out of one hundred and twenty seats, nineteen ninety-one to nineteen ninety-three, uh, you have relentless strikes, including from workers at the Elf Gabon energy plant. Elf is a, a big, you know, French oil conglomerate. N- not talking about not 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 some small exactly who.
1: No, that's that is important. I mean if, if you whiff enough of the fumes, is.
2: I assume you see some of those pixies as well. But uh no, this is this is the oil company that is, is kind of, you know Gabon's link to international commerce really. In December nineteen ninety three, Bongo wins the presidential election again. And this time it's no longer a call for unity. It's a call for I'm going to crack all your heads uh, and uh, quite a, an aggressive crackdown on opposition. And he really consolidates power, puts an end to all of this rioting that's happened. Vote for Bongo. Get cracking. That's it. January 1994, there is a 50% devaluation of the currency. Oh. And again, more protests in, in several cities. Three dozen people were killed. Uh, many, many injured. It, it, things are getting really violent. More suppression from Bongo. That's the stick, but he has a bit of carrot as well. He grants some modest salary increases, plays some controls on the prices of basic commodities, um, and later on he would end France's exclusive rights to Gabon's supply of uranium, limit France's oversight of Gabonese foreign policy, and expel a French teacher as a show of independence from French authorities. So he kind of goes a bit anti-French here.
1: Just just one teacher. Just one
2: teacher, that's it, but it's... That does seem, like, okay.
1: on, on that list, that seems the least... Um... You know. Impactful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No he foreign has, he... policy. No no more uranium for you. And also, Madame Delacour has to go <laughs> no, home. Yeah. She's very, very upset. You,
2: you had mentioned about that French Union yeah. thing, Joe. Actually, I, I quickly Googled yeah. it. And apparently, it kind of continued on in a sort of a much reduced and more pathetic form um for quite a long time they renamed it basically um but even then kind of France were still kind of trying to have as much control over um country's foreign policy as they could I guess Gabon kind yeah. of went along with that potentially but yeah here here's the reaction I think it only f- officially ended in 1995 when when France um repealed the laws that had created it uh, domestically
0: but Bongo had been very pro France right, exactly in the past, yeah and this is a big this is right? a big reaction yeah, yeah. to it it sounds like almost his way of kind of scapegoating. I'm
1: doing something. Hey, I'm doing something. It's yeah, because exactly. of the
0: French. Like, it's not it's not me. It's the French. Sure. Like. I mean, I think I think it's
2: whatever works because yeah. he's had he's had, you know, unprecedented unrest for years now. So he's just trying to do something different. Yeah. In 1998, uh, he's elected again. And there's a constitutional change in 2003, which meant he could run again in 2005. Oh, that's a surprise. But by the late 1990s, debt payments were approximately 40 percent of the budget. Uh, France helped with funds and pushing for debt relief, but pressure increased from the IMF pushing for privatization of state corporations and to eliminate the diversion of state funds, which the country was able to show some progress in in the 2000s, but that allowed Gabon uh, to reschedule a significant amount of debt in 2004. Now, big, big transition. Uh, Omar Bongo dies in 2009 in Barcelona while receiving treatment for cancer.
1: After the death of Fidel Castro, until his death, he was the longest serving oh. non-royal head of state in the world. Uh, wow. So
2: he, he's had a good run. He's had an exceptionally good run. I mean, for him, not necessarily for Gabon, but, you know, him, him as a person has had a very good run. But um, yeah, as, as he's gone, there's a, a wide, varied selection of people to replace him. But there was one guy, one oh, yeah. one guy, a firebrand upstart, stood from the back. His name is Ali Bongo, his son, (laughs) former defence minister and son of Omar Bongo. He is elected as president. All the normal opposition groups saw this for what it was, uh, effectively just business as usual. Uh, Ali Bongo came in with lots of nice statements, um, professing his support for democratic policies in Gabon, promising during his campaign to bring more transparency and democracy to Gabon. Uh,
1: all very nice stuff. Did 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 you know that after being Defence Minister, he organised for Michael Jackson to visit Gabon in the 90s? Ooh. It's just a thing in Ali goes back. Amazing. Nice. That qualifies him. <laughs> so, um... Port
2: Gentile, which I mentioned a few times, it's probably worth mentioning, the Port Gentile is kind of the the centre for resistance to the the Bongo regime, um, because that is kind of where the oil is based. So they're kind of economically more important, a bit wealthier, and as a result, feel like they can kind of throw their weight around, you know, correctly feel like they can throw their weight around a bit. Mm. Anyway, so um, Port Gentile has the main market, and some French-owned buildings there were set on fire. The post-election fervour subsided, um, and like most Gabonese leaders, Ali Bongo is a member of the educated, politically connected urban elite, uh, educated at the Sorbonne, no less. 2016. Yeah. Ali Bongo wins again. uh, A long life of winning. So he won 49.8% of the vote against 48.23% of the vote for his rival, a man called Jean Ping. Jean Ping is a career diplomat, former president of the UN General Assembly. I thought that was super impressive when I heard it. And I was like, oh, wow. Like, you know, Kofi Annan or something. I was like, but I was like, I don't think he, I don't, think I've heard of this guy that's General General Secretary Secretary, exactly so I went down the list and I literally had not heard of a single other person who was UN General Assembly uh, President except for Frederick Boland Uh, uh, had a little Irish flag beside him and he's Evan Boland's dad um, so, uh, there was one Irish uh, equivalent. Evan Boland is a very famous poet in Ireland, at least, so that we all have to learn about her regardless of whether we want to or not. Although she is excellent. So, uh, you know,
0: I actually did. And now you have as well, li- um, listeners. She, she is actually very good. So, um,
2: Ping himself also educated, educated at Sorbonne. He was also married to the daughter of Omar Bongo, um, with which he has two kids. So he's actually Ali Bongo's former brother-in-law, bizarrely. Yeah. Oh, Wow. Anyway, Ali Bongo won in part due to his home territory voting for him with an enthusiastic 99.93% turnout. And the Constitutional Court cancelled results from 21 polling stations, giving Ali Bongo a comfortable majority in the end. So yeah, no, it's pretty shady. It's it's extremely shady. Several people were also shot dead. Okay. Also very shady. And the apartment was set on fire. So ongoing lack of love for Ali Bongo. Uh, just to flag, there is actually a really good uh, Radio Lab episode called Breaking Bongo, which is all about kind of the international Gabonese diaspora and their reaction to kind of Ali Bongo and his family clinging to power, and in particular, kind of following him around the world. Uh, and making a huge holy show anytime he goes anywhere, and just generally embarrassing him. It's actually a very good, uh, a very good and interesting episode. I'm not going to go into the detail of this, but there was also uh, an attempted coup in 2019. We're we're kind of well into the area of you know stuff we don't really regard as history, but you know a, another yeah. kind of failed coup attempt thing happened.
0: And it was it was something to do with again we won't really touch on it too much, but there's there was. Belief that a video of the of Ali Bongo was a was a fake or something like that. Uh, there's a, there's a documentary oh, yeah. about it that the Washington Post made, which I uh, I've I'll link to in the show notes if you want to find out more about it. I think it's about twenty minutes long. Yeah, we won't we won't get into that here. So that that about brings us up to the modern day. Very much so. So just on the economy, uh, as as we mentioned previously, Gabon is is. Heavily reliant on heavily on oil. Heavily, uh, it's the fifth largest oil yeah. producer in Africa, and it's had fairly strong economic growth over the past decade, largely driven by uh, oil production and manganese. Woo, manganese. Uh, the yeah, the oil sector has accounted for eighty percent of exports, forty five percent of GDP, and sixty percent of uh, fiscal revenue on average over the past five years. However, the country is facing a decline in its oil reserves, and uh, the Gabonese government has decided to diversify its economy uh, i'm not sure how exactly but um but,
1: but they have decided it would be yeah, a they have decided start. to do so that's a it's a start yeah uh i'd like to say that um that the kind of ecology and and uh sure. environment is is an important aspect of Gabon. Mm-hmm. so 40 percent of the world's gorilla population live in Gabon. that's cool which is it's a lot of it's a big proportion of gorillas and there's all these legends yep. about them that are really fun, but I, I don't, we don't really have time to go into it where they're like somewhere between a monster and, a, and, a, you know, a real thing and an animal uh, and the Ngil initiation cult that I talked about that was banned by the hmm. French. We, they, the mask I think represented a gorilla. So it was kind of, okay. It's part, part of, of the culture there. And um, also there's forest elephants. Cool fairly widespread forest elephants unfortunately they do seem to be eaten some of these mm. animals um so like the the people the hunter-gatherer people in the rainforest seem to be open to eating most things um
0: as hunter-gatherers tend yeah. to
1: be i suppose and I, I don't know if there's much discussion about whether that should be limited um but ecotourism is a popular uh draw for Outsiders to visit right. Gabon.
0: Yeah, I mentioned in the intro, I think, but there's a huge amount of national parks and rainforests and yeah. stuff as well that have been protected. So,
1: but Luangwa National Park is sometimes called Africa's last Eden.
0: Right. Hmm.
1: And uh, there's some cool stuff there. Like you have, have like um, hippos playing on the beach. It's one of the few places where you get savanna animals at the coast. Wow, um, interesting. And so they like they go surfing. It's quite cute. Fair enough. We we also have, we were talking to Krasimir Stimat, who is a, a trivia expert, and he he pointed out was uh, also about the the uh, dwarf crocodiles in the Abanda caves, which are essentially blind because they they live in near darkness and they've orange skin because the water is alkaline from all the bat guano. So they're just kind of weird, creepy underground, blind dwarf crocodile species that are. Unique to Gabon. Nice, I guess. Yeah, and I also wanted to mention that the there's a, some really advanced research facilities in Gabon, like some of the the most advanced kind of biological research facilities in Africa are here. Excellent, cool. And also this kind of a, a research center associated with Schweitzer's Hospital, uh, kind of spun. It's not no longer directly attached, but its history is as part of that hospital. And it does a lot of research to tropical diseases in in Africa, um, which Mm. sounds quite interesting. Cool. Nice.
0: Mark, you had a bit on sport. Sport
2: and general famous people. Uh, Starting with general famous people. uh, Ludacris's wife, uh, Eudoxie Mbugienge, oh, I'm not sure I did well on that, uh, is, uh, is from Gabon, but is the only kind of out-and-out out celebrity I could find apart from Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, uh, famous uh, Arsenal uh, forward, formerly of uh, AC Milan, Monaco and Dortmund, a proper global sports superstar who's who's from Gabon. Um, apparently, although he was yeah. born in France, his mother's Spanish, uh, he chose to play for Gabon since his father, Pierre Aubameyang, was the team captain for Gabon's national team in the 1990s. So he's following in his father's footsteps. Yeah. Also, there was uh, another fact from Crash Uh, another sports fact was that uh, apparently in 1993, uh, there was a plane crash uh, in Caban that killed the Zambian national football team. And then the new Zambian national football team went to the finals of the African Cup of Nations in 1994, where they lost Nigeria. But then in 2012, they won the African Cup of Nations in Libreville. Uh, So, yeah. Quite uh, oh. storied, and yeah, G- Gabon are, are pretty good at football, but it doesn't hurt that they've had you know two generations of Aubameyang, uh powering them forward, so they 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 do pretty well.
1: And that African Cup of Nations uh, in in Libreville was sung at by Patience Tabeni ah, yes, the, uh, the uh, of course, mother of the of course. current president, who 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 we've played a bit of music on All
0: right, I think that's it so if you want to find more episodes of the podcast uh you can go to 80dayspodcast.com or your favorite podcast player the podcast is also supported by patrons uh on our patreon page patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcasts uh we'd like to thank them
1: thanks for sticking with us
0: guys uh, for their generous support uh particularly over the, the last few seasons and the last year or so while we're recording this has been has been a bit uh bit up and down s- s- so, slow um, is the word we yeah, fin- been, we've been thanks for sticking with us uh, we can, we can we've it. been slow uh, hopefully by the time you're listening to this uh things have have, have improved significantly yeah if you want to connect with us on social media uh, you can search us on instagram uh, facebook or twitter run all those things if you search 80 days podcast uh, and yeah if you want to get directly in touch with us if you want to tell us what you think or tell us what you hated or tell us what we got wrong you can email us 80dayspodcast at gmail.com and as always you can find uh, show notes and links to the things that we've talked about in this episode in the show notes or on our website 80dayspodcast.com Thank you very much for listening and we will see you next time.
1: Bye bye! Au revoir!